Welcome to WeRGB. I am Brenton, joined as always by the lovely Danielle. That's me. Thanks for joining us this week as we count up the IMDb's best movies of all time and discuss some of the greatest films you mightn't ever have seen. This week, rated as number seven on the Internet Movie Database by millions of film lovers from around the world, is The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Released in 2003, starring Ian McKellen and Elijah Wood, and Viggo Mortensen and Orlando Bloom yeah. and Kate Blanchett and Hugo Weaving, Liv Tyler, a whole bunch of people. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King is an epic fantasy film set in the magical lands of Middle-earth. The film is a third part of the movie series based on the third part of a book series written by J.R.R. Tolkien, published in 1955. It is co-produced, co-written, and directed by Peter Jackson. Now, because this is the first Lord of the Rings movie that we'll be talking about on the list, with the other two not too far behind, we will be spending a lot of time talking about the trilogy as a whole. Just because, um, like, it's hard to talk about it without it being, thinking of it as one entity, because the whole story really is very continuous. So Yes. Yeah. So we will be talking more about the whole trilogy before we specifically get into Return of the King. And much like the movie itself, this episode could run a bit long. Yeah. It's a long movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Although we will be talking about the series as a whole, when we get into the movie itself, we will probably have spoilers of all three films, so keep that in mind. However, the first little bit of this discussion, I'd like to talk about what is Lord of the Rings, as if you haven't seen any of them, as if you just, like, crawled out of a hole and you've never heard of Lord of the Rings. Like the I was when I had first seen this movie <laughs> for the first time, like, last year. Well, that's an interesting yeah. perspective then. Yeah, I hadn't seen any of these movies until 2018 when we sat down and watched them all. Yeah, we watched all through all The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit in order of release. Yeah, and I can't believe I went as long as I did. It's like my Star Wars journey. I can't believe I'd gone as long as I did without ever having seen Lord of the Rings. Well, it's a little different with Lord of the Rings with you because you're, you're such a fantasy I'm a geek. fantasy addict. This genre is all I would ever read when I was in school. So we'd have to take out books, right, and do go home and read and stuff. And I just, I read Harry Potter. I read Septimus Heap. I read The Alchemist. I read... Narnia. I, uh, I didn't read Narnia until I was out of school, but I, anything fantasy at all is what I read. I read Inkheart. I read those dragons, tear, or whatever fucking books. Um, I love fantasy. So I can't believe I ever went as long as I did without ever having read or seen these movies. They're awesome. I love them. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Lord of the Rings trilogy is the best movie trilogy ever made. I think that could be a controversial topic because these films can be seen as a little boring, uh, a little weird, a little gross because they're just like these epic stretches of movies the entire series, not including the credits, is 11 and a half hours. It's essentially six movies instead of three. The Return of the King, uh, including credits, is four and a half hours. So if you're not aware of what these movies are going into them, I, c I can see why you mightn't be open to it. But yeah. you have to go into the series knowing that it's an endurance event. It's a marathon, not a sprint. I understand people when they say that it, it, it's, it's quite a commitment to watch them all. Mm -hmm. Honestly, if, once you start at the beginning, you really just have to get involved. Like my 
my sisters both haven't seen these series purely because it is such a big commitment. Well, and like I said earlier, it really is one big long 12-hour movie just cut into segments because the story is so continuous and each of like the second and third pick up where the, the last one left off. So yeah, like it really is something where they can exist on their own to a certain extent, but they really They really are, shouldn't. Yeah, like they really are very much part of one giant entity. So I can see why people are hesitant to get involved in watching these. Well, that's essentially how the original book was. He wrote... It was massive. He wrote this The Lord of the Rings as a sequel to The Hobbit. But because of the book being so large and the limitations of publications in the 50s, they had to break it up into three books, mm-hmm. which I think was actually broken up into six. I have, I have two copies of it. And there's full of appendices and there's like interludes and like... And he had a whole like religious system and everything worked out for this. This is like the most consistent, in-depth world building ever. Ever. Tolkien was insane when it came to this. He's got multiple languages. He's got religion. He's got creation stories. He's got like demonology and theology, like, and then a story and different races and anthropology. It's insane. It's as in-depth and as complicated as a religious text or a textbook where it's just consistently, it's not just like a storybook. It's the way he wrote these was insane amount of detail and honestly like i would go and read this for the plot because i was for a very long time very much someone who um enjoyed reading a story for the story i would go and read this for the story but i would also go and do surrounding research being the big geek that i am so that i could do a second read and have so much more appreciation for it because like i said i'm a big fantasy nerd i would love every minute of doing that adjacent I imagine it would be pretty heavy, though, to do a fair bit of research on this because it's so in-depth. Which is why I would do that as a second read. So that's why the movies flow uh, like one big movie is because the books flow like like one big book. Because they were. Yes. That's how it was intended. That's how it was intended. And it was only broken up because of the publication limitations. Same way that the movie was only broken up because they couldn't put a 12-hour movie in cinemas. I want to hear why you think this is the best trilogy. Oh, right. Yes. No, I, I can understand why some people out there, when I said that, will probably be like, no, nah, that's bullshit no. because of this. Mm-hmm. It's not that great. It's overrated. Whatever. Are you talking about the story as like the books or the or as the movie or as the whole as thing? As in... The Lord of the Rings trilogy is the greatest trilogy ever made. Movie trilogy. Okay. Let's just look at the numbers on the IMDb. Okay. Return of the King is at number seven. Which is very good. Which is very good. It's top ten. Fellowship of the Ring, which is the first one. Number 11. Just missed out. And The Two Towers, which is the second one, is number 15. So all three of this trilogy is in the top 15 movies of all time as rated by IMDb. And it makes sense, too, that, like, the order that they're in actually makes a lot of sense, I think. Why is that? Because any second movie that's like a bridger is usually not the best. Like, think about uh, the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Okay, I don't think that's the best example. I would disagree because I think something like Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie. 
because with that middle movie, you have that creative freedom. You don't. You're not trying to set it up with the first movie. You're not trying to conclude it with the end. You're mm-hmm. able to do whatever you want with that with that first one. I think the middle Indiana Jones does a very similar sort of thing, where it's more. They're more wacky. They're more open to being able to have that creative freedom. In some instances, doesn't always work out. But I think the the middle one usually is pretty good. Mm-hmm. I would think. In this case, I I like Return of the King best out of the three. Yeah, and that's why I think it's rated so highly because because it is that concluding piece. Like, everyone's looking forward to it. The hype's up there. They already like the story. They're like, yeah, like, this is so good. You know what I mean? It mm. kind of makes sense why, to me anyways, it kind of makes sense the order that they're in. I think some people out there will probably make an argument for, well, what else could be the best trilogy? Star Wars. Let's have a look at that. Empire Strikes Back, number 13, very good. Uh, you've got the first one, Star Wars, New Hope, number 22, very good. Okay. And then Return of the Jedi is at 78. So they're all three of them are in the top 100. I actually quite like Return of the Jedi. Better than, yeah, I better was, than the first one. I was really surprised at how low that scored. I mean, top 100, but you definitely think top 50. So it's definitely up there in the yeah. conversation, but it's like not in the top 15, all three of them. So what else? What else? What, Back to the Future? That's up there. That's fun. It's not a perfect trilogy, though. Do you think Harry though. Potter should be anywhere up there? I say that mostly because it was such a pop culture phenomenon for when In I terms was of up. the quality of films, there's like a couple of them in the series that are okay, but there was more of a nostalgic... The, I would think so, and I think it's more the story and that we kind of grew up with it thing. So I, I agree with you there. Um, Even Indiana Jones, they didn't make the top cut for the best trilogy. Hmm. So in terms of the IMDb ratings. So if you're just looking at the ratings, well, even like The Godfather, you've got two out of the three of the trilogy in the top three. Mm-hmm. But the third one falls flat. It's not a perfect trilogy. If we forget the IMDb and we just look at what the industry thinks, the Academy Awards, let's have a look at that. Mm-hmm. The Godfather trilogy won nine out of 28 nominations. That's a lot of nominations. That's a lot of nominations. Holy crap. Okay. Star Wars won 10 out of 20 nominations. Lord of the Rings won 17 from 30 nominations. Wow. So not only did they win the most awards, they won... It sounded like the highest proportion. Yes. Out of, like, they won... Out of the nominations, they won the highest percentage of them. Well, most of them was Return of the King. Return of the King has the record for winning the most number of Oscars with 11. I am not surprised. It is tied with Ben-Hur and Titanic. Um, including Best Picture, which is kind of interesting that a film like this, I was watch- when we were watching it, the, that the Academy would praise this movie so highly. I think it's good because it, you get a bit of variance there, but it's not your normal Oscar bait. Can I go into why I'm not surprised with that? Yes. There was so much that went into making this, like to do the script writing, like to translate a book, a massive, massive book like that into a movie and tell the story so well that's one piece of it to be able to just the amount of detail they went into with like set and costume production to be able to tell that story i'm not surprised there again the acting and like i think you said everybody who was involved in this movie was passionate about that story the third point i was going to make into this argument was this is the largest film production i've ever seen yeah i don't mean that is in like time or money or people involved i'm talking about 
passion, really. And that obviously doesn't always equate to a good film, but you can see that they cared about it. These films started in 97, and the last one was released in 2003. I've got these on Blu-ray, the extended editions. It's 15 discs for three movies. That's an entire, like, television series. They're in there, there's, like, documentaries on Tolkien and what they're doing. There's behind the scenes on behind the scenes. There were people working on this film for five years, making chainmail, two people, full-time job. For all of... For years. Yeah. Like hand making chain mill. That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about this production value is that they went into so much detail. All of those battle scenes had so many extras. There's a lot of practical effects. A lot of it is CG, but there is a lot of practical effects. Well, some of it has to be CG. I mean, where are you going to find a dragon? Where are you going to find a troll? Um, But like the fact that you put all of the orcs, it goes into this in the behind the scenes. All of those were all people. And they, they all made, looked different. They yeah. felt different. So they, they feel like they have the individuality. They had to go ahead and make probably, I'm going to go out on a limb and say hundreds of masks. It'll say it in the in the yeah. documentaries there. For all of these actors who were just extras. You know what I mean? They, they didn't have lines. They were just marching. So they had to make chain mail and armor and face masks and makeup and hair and that's just one species that was in this trilogy and all the different species have their own different style of armor and the little details you would have had to have like graphics teams you would have one graphics team for the elves one for the trolls one for the riders of rohan one's for the soldiers of gondor one for the orcs one for the hobbits you would have had so many different teams working on every aspect of this like, it's just insane. And that's what I'm referring to when I say I'm not surprised because of the value they put into producing this movie. Yeah, that's what I mean by this is the biggest production I've seen. Because Absolutely. obviously, if you're looking at money or time or people or, or effort or anything like that, there's obviously bigger productions. There's always bigger productions. Well, and even just like the care they put into selecting where they decided to film and how they built the sets and everything with hobbiton they built it and let it sit for like 18 months before they filmed it so it looked like it was lived in yeah that's insane and they built two they built a small one and they built a large one so that when they would do scenes with gandalf he wouldn't have to be artificially made larger they did that with all of the props particularly within bilbo's house yeah so you would have two sets of props you know what i mean just all that yeah just all of that so that like there was a whole tree in hobbiton that they completely made from scratch all the little leaves and you only see it for like 10 seconds of a scene in the background while he's smoking his pipe because of that i would say that this is the best trilogy if you want to make an argument for this isn't they're not actually sequels they're actually parts of one big movie i can completely see that if you want to look at traditional sequels i'm going to say that star wars is the best Yes. Because those are traditional sequels. Each movie has its own feel. It got different directors, it can different stand teams. Alone. Yeah. yeah, they're standalone. And they went back to the drawing board after every one. These were filmed back to back. So I can see an argument for that. Yeah, you literally pick up right where the last one left off. Because it is, like you say, it's parts. They don't stand alone as well as, as other movies could. I think I like Return of the King best because, for a number of reasons, I think it's most linear. The first couple seem to jump between, particularly the second one, where they're all split up into groups. And this one starts split up into groups because that's how the second one was. It leads straight on from the second one. So this one just seems to flow a little bit better. And it converges, so it becomes It converges, yeah. Yeah. And you've already, 
you've already set up these characters in the first one, they were split up in the second one, and then they're converging with these characters that you've been with for several hours at this point in the third one. That's why I like trilogies, because we often talk about um, how I don't like starting new movies and stuff because I don't like the investment. If I'm going to make an investment in a series, then I don't have to like reinvest every time. I always like to watch the extended edition of these because you're going on a journey, particularly when that first opening of The Fellowship of the Ring and you've got the music and it's just like this epic uh, fantasy score that's behind it. I know I'm going on a journey right now. So I like to have the little scenes in there of the character developments, the hobbits dancing on the tables in the bar Mm -hmm. or the interaction between Legolas and Gimli and you see that develop. So I don't mind watching the four and a half hour version every time I watch it because when I start it, I know I'm going on this long journey, really. This thing is stretched over like years. Frodo Mm -hmm. goes walking on this journey to Mordor and it's it's an investment into the world. Yeah, and I'd rather do one initial investment and then ride it out for a long time than say watch three different movies about three different things where I have to make an investment every time. That's just me. As long as you know that you're not just going to get this over and done with within an afternoon. <laughs> this, Yeah, this is such an enjoyable story that I would highly recommend it to everybody. But it is a journey. <laughs> I think it was when the Hobbit movies were coming out, I started to get a couple of friends together and we were going to do a marathon uh-huh. of Lord of the Rings to try and lead, lead up to it. Yeah. yeah. And I I don't know why, but I completely forgot how long these things were. So we went over our house and there's a few of us watching it and it went through the night and we went to bed and then I was watching it at her house the next day and she's going to work and she comes home from work and I'm still watching them and she's like, what are you doing in my house? (laughs) That's crazy. She was fine with it. But I I don't know why I, I decided to do that. I understand. I did the same thing with Harry Potter. Yeah, that, that's probably just as long as these three movies as those eight films. Those, I think, can stand alone a little better because... Mm, not towards the end. Not towards the end, but initially because she wrote them in such a way that each year had like a different little story, you know? Yes. I think it's completely natural to compare this series with Harry Potter because they're fantasy series that are coming out around the same time. Were they? I guess they were, weren't they? Yeah. Except that Lord of the Rings had been around already for such a long time. Like, my mom read The Lord of the Rings. Yeah. And I think it's completely natural to compare elements of it. Can I jump into this right now? Because I have to say, I was so disappointed when I realized how much... Harry Potter had ripped off Lord of the Rings. There are so many elements, so many elements that I'm like, oh my God, they're the same. They're the same. That's interesting. I think that any sort of fantasy series is going to be retreading because they're using the same sort of ideas and creatures and things like that. I would like to do a part on this. Yeah. Once we've gone through all three of them again. I agree with you on that. Do you want to do it when we do... The last one. Two Towers. Two Towers, okay. yeah. Yeah, I agree with you because there's things where I'm like, there's more and I know there's more. Yes. Um, and you were making a list and I think you'll get more on that list by the time we watch the next. And you had one specific example, didn't you, of one thing that you wanted to bring up. 
like one similarity that's very strong between the two. Well, I wanted to talk about the character of Gandalf, and I think it's natural to compare him to Dumbledore. Isn't it interesting that the same actor was offered both parts? What was his name? Richard Harris, the guy who died after the second Harry Potter movie. And they were trying to find uh, a, replacement. a replacement. So they they offered it to Ian McKellen. And he said, no, they're, they're two similar roles. People will get confused. Mm-hmm. Which, um, good on him for like respecting the dignity of both films, you know. As I, he would. Yeah, I've, I really appreciate that. Yeah. I kind of like Gandalf as a character better, as this almighty sort of wizard, because he's he's more sassy. I like them both for for different reasons but i agree like dumbledore is a gentle badass gandalf is a hard-ass badass you know what i mean okay yeah like you wouldn't see dumbledore walking around with his staff whacking hobbits and telling them to shut up and stuff you know (laughs) like um i love that scene where the steward's just going crazy and he just smacks him in the face (laughs) he's like prepare for battle or he just you know he sits around and smokes pipe weed with all the hobbits all the time you know like he's just it's really interesting to me. So we looked into um, a little bit of background and um, universe building information on the Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth uh, universe, and we learned that Gandalf is actually not a human. He's he's a wizard. He's a wizard, which is considered like semi angelic. So he's like a higher metaphysical being. He's on the same kind of level as the Balrog. Yes. Yeah. There's a series of tiers, and it sounds very complicated. Yeah. Um, But what I just found interesting and why I brought that up is because he seems the most out of all the wizards, because apparently there's five wizards and we only meet three of them, but he seems to be the most comfortable with engaging with other species and kind of not lowering himself to their level, but like participating in their culture and things. So like I brought up the the smoking- he seems to be the most open to the traditional cause of harmony in the world. Yeah, and he just seems he seems to be the like the trajectory that his character goes on, he seems to be the perfect kind of personality for that. So he becomes very involved later on in in the story. And I think it makes perfect sense because he's such a great liaison for all of the different races that exist in Middle-earth because he participates in all of them. You know I don't what I mean? think you could have had a series like this without a character yeah. like Gandalf. You need that central character to rely back to who's very powerful and and knowledge. But also when you say down to earth, that's what I I think that's the word I was trying to use the most. You know what I mean? Like he's strong, he's powerful, he don't give a shit. But he also very much is fine with being connected with everybody. Whereas, like, somebody like Sauron considers himself kind of above all of the lower races that are below Which is why he's sort of, his trajectory is tainted. Yes. Well, and Radagast is a little left to center and gets too involved with the animals. He's also narrow-minded in his own way as well. Yeah, he's too comfortable with the animals, whereas Gandalf, like I said down to earth is very comfortable connecting with everybody and that's why he's able to perform the the role that he does and that he's required to because he's so comfortable there one of the main reasons as to why i like return of the king the best and i think the best part of the return of the king is the battle of minas tirith i love that scene it is just 
It's so intense. It's it, it is. It, it's a great progression from the battle scene that you see in Two Towers of Helm's Deep. Mm-hmm. Um, you see a progression oh, right. in the armies that are there and the people that are involved with the creatures, the technology. Because in that scene, it's a small castle that's against a mountain, and they've got those big ladders that come yep. and, and link on. And then this one, they've upgraded to these big scaffolding things that are being pushed by the trolls. That whole scene basically starts out with the the village that's on the river, and you've got the the Knights of Gondor that are protecting Minas Tirith. And then as that village gets overtaken, they start to retreat to Minas Tirith. You've got that great scene where Denethor is eating, and he's just sent Faramir back to go fight at the village, and Pippin is singing. And it's just this big epic sort of battle as you know that Faramir is getting sentenced to death essentially by his father. And you see the arrows get launched and then you see the the juice strip off his lip to indicate bloodshed. And you don't actually see the fate of Faramir until later on. You realize he's alive, but you're, you're pretty sure that he's died. I really hated that scene because I'm just like, it embodies his his character as a ruler. And that he's a really terrible one because they're his his well, whole point, city yeah. is at war and he's just sitting there stuffing his face and he's like can't even be classy enough to like do it without spilling stuff all over himself. I just I just I hate that character. I'm glad what happened to him <laughs> happened to him. I don't understand his character progression. I'm sure it's understood more in the books. Um, it just seems it seems very odd. I think that's the point though, and I think it's meant to kind of exemplify the fact that like. Gondor so badly needs its king. Mm, that's a good you point. You know what I mean? And that's where why it's so important that Aragorn makes it back to the throne because like the steward is just the embodiment of all the bad rulership that Gondor has endured since whenever they lost the king. Who was the last king of Sildor? Was that the last time there was a king of Gondor? Th- yeah, because he's the one who made the pact. That was thousands of years yeah, ago. He's the last one who made the pact with, with the men of the mountain, remember? Mm. Very surprising that they kept track of that lineage for so long when it wasn't a royal lineage. Well, but that's the point is that like you have to... That's kind of um, representative of any kind of royal line. You can't just have any Joe Blow running a kingdom. So if they're not directly royal, they'll be nobles, which is what he was. He was a nobleman. That's why he was a steward. So he would be related in some way or form to the original line of Usildur. You say it's surprising that they kept track of the lineage. It's actually not surprising at all because... No, I meant of Aragorn. Oh. How would how would they know that he's the heir of Usildur? Through if the he's... elves, I guess. I don't know. Maybe they yeah, keep track. Yeah, those, those guys have been around a while. Yeah. I think it's a great progression of a battle scene where it starts out sort of slow and it sort of builds and builds you sort of start off with the knights of gondor just protecting Minas Tirith and getting ready for battle and you get the you've got the riders from that village on the river and they're being attacked and then they have to retreat back to Minas Tirith and then you've got the army from Mordor and they they arrive they're attacking shit's going down it's just escalating and then just as you think that shit's just getting really bad, then you've got the riders from Rohan. They show up and they're just like chanting. They've got their cavalry. They run in. They're just like stomping shit. And then just as they're sort of kicking ass, you hear this like 
ominous drumming and they look over and you got these massive war elephants and they're all painted up like some Mad Max shit and they come swinging in with their spikes and their tusks and they're kicking ass. And then you've also got the sailors, the pirates that's coming in from the river. The whole time you've got like Nazgul flying around just like swooping people and then just as all hope is lost... Aragorn shows up with the army of the dead and they come through and they just sweep it out. It's gruesome. It's ridiculous, but it's awesome. It's so great. From what you just said, you can see that it was so multifaceted and it is very, very different, a very different battle as compared to like the battle at Helm's Deep. Like I said, that was really quite one front, whereas this, this is many fronts. Oh, it did have its own levels to it because Gandalf also shows up with riders and comes in through and kicks ass. Mm -hmm. I don't think you could have a good battle scene without having those levels. It it felt level in terms of in terms of people of equal level fighting each other, so it wasn't just one-sided. You've got so many different armies and different species fighting each other on this massive battlefront and it's just filmed in such an awesome way. In terms of the cinematography, it keeps moving around. So and the thing with Minas Tirith is that it's it's built on a mountain, so like it's really it's it's almost like a staircase of a city. So you you flip back from like the battlefield to the city to the river to the mountain to the battlefield to the city and all that time like things are changing. So initially you've got like just thousands of orcs with mechanical, you know, catapults and staircases and then you flip around and you're in the city and you know, Gandalf is acting as general, basically. And then you flip back to the mountain and Legolas and Gimli and Aragorn are, you know, negotiating to get the the army of the dead to come help them. And then you go back to the field and you've got, like you said, your war elephants and your whatever those freaking wolf things are. And then you go back and you're on the river and they've got like the people in the boats. Like it's just... It's never a dull moment anywhere in where you're cutting no. back to and from. And how long was that scene? Oh. I mean, it wasn't one scene, but how long 40 was 40 minutes. I don't yeah, know. It's sequence. a long scene. It was insane. I, I specifically wrote in my notebook, I love battle scenes. All of this is why. <laughs> I always look forward to that part. Yeah. One of the biggest things as to why I personally was disappointed with the Hobbit movies, particularly the last one, is because I was expecting that. And the last one is called The Battle of Five Armies. So when I heard that, I thought, fuck yes, I'm going to get another massive, awesome Minas Tirith battle. And they try to do that, but it's very confusing as to who's fighting who, why they're fighting. It's very CG. I was going to say, I think a big part of why that movie falls short is because they didn't put in the amount of production Effort. value that they put into Lord of the Rings. Like... Why would you hire 500 extras when you can just CG them in? Because it looks better. Because it feels better. It's actually cheaper. Is it? Yeah. The okay. Hobbit movies were like double the price of these because of the amount of CG. Yeah, why would you do that? I mean, and the thing too is that they would have had all of the the props and everything still. Yeah. And it's I probably mean, a big warehouse in New Zealand somewhere just full of these things. And there were there were a bunch of orcs in the in the Hobbit movies too, weren't there? Even after watching that last film, I couldn't tell you what the five armies are. I could probably tell you what three of them are. Even while I'm watching it, I'm like, I don't know who's fighting who or why they're fighting. Yeah. Um, and that's why it was disappointing for me because I love that battle scene in Minas Tirith so much. Well, and it's very... They did a very good job of helping you identify who is who. Yeah. You know, like, 
you can very clearly identify the riders of Rohan and uh, distinguish them from the Knights of Minas Tirith because of their uniform. And you know where everyone is at every point, which is good. Yeah. You don't often get that with a lot of fight scenes, particularly when it's fast-paced action. But at the same time, it doesn't... Even though you jump around a lot, it doesn't feel like you're jumping around a lot. You know yes. what I mean? Like, they did it in such a way that, like... It was long enough scenes and cuts that you got what you needed to, but it wasn't so short that you're like, oh my god, I was here, now I'm there, now I'm here, now I'm there. You know what I mean? It was it was just, it was done so, so well. The whole series shows you a bunch of things that I really wish existed in reality. Such as? Such as the city of Minas Tirith. That is oh such an awesome city, just the way that it's built. I think there are things that do exist because... When you say that, the the thing that immediately pops into my mind is the city of Petra in Jordan. So, mm. because Minas Tirith is carved out of a mountain, it's very obvious that the city is carved out of and built into the mountain. And Petra is the same. It's not a mountain, but it's a rock face. Yeah, but I'm thinking to this scale. Like, the yeah. way that... No, absolutely. It would have taken, like, thousands of years and lots of man hours to build a city like that. Even in the Fellowship of the Ring, you've got these massive statues at the gates well, when they were coming down the river and they've got their hands out, these guardians. Stuff like that would be really cool. You, you hear about a lot in mythology. Um, I'm and- thinking it's got to be, like, again, I, immediately I have a, an image of giant Buddha statues. So I think there are, right. it's based on certain things, but I agree with you that the scale that they exist in in fantasy doesn't necessarily exist in the real world. But I think there are things that you could say are representative of what you're talking about. I think you're right in terms of, like, I wish that more of the ancient seven wonders of the world still existed. Yes. Because I think that, like, the Colossus of Rhodes would have been up there is one of those things, but they've all been destroyed except for one, which is a shame because more of these things would have been really cool to be able to go visit and know that that has a history and like people have been living here for thousands of mm-hmm. years doing this sort of thing and having this culture um and you see that more in these grand spectacles i think too part of the reason why we feel like it's not like the real world is because these universes tend to um condense all of these wonders into quite a small area you know what i mean so this stuff does exist in the world that we live in but it's very far apart Mm. so like you've got things like stonehenge and then you've got things like uh like i said petra and jordan which is quite far away and then you've got the great wall of china which is far again and then you've got uh the aztec cities of mexico yeah i know i know and stuff so there are things they're just like you can't like oh let's go for a three-day journey and go to the next one you know what i mean like i see what you're saying yeah I kind of think that the CGI in this movie has aged kind of badly. Like, it, it's pretty bad in some instances, but I think it's better than some of the other th- projects that were around at the same time, like the prequel trilogy were coming out at the same time. The early Harry Potters was terrible CG. I was just going to say, it was horrible before Warner Brothers took it over. Ugh. The very first movie had terrible CGI. So I think it's aged a little better than some of those movies, but it, it's still a little clunky. I think it's good enough that you can look past it. That's the point that I was going to want to make. I think if you just keep that in mind. So you've got crappy CGI, but you've got such good 
live action footage that like it kind of it kind of makes up for itself. It blends together. Yeah. It kind of blends together better than some of the scenes in The Hobbit, which was released twelve years later. Yeah, when the CG was better. I remember being disappointed in that. Um, in the Hobbit. In the CG of the Hobbit, I was just yeah. like, "That's so obvious," and you didn't need to do it that way because you didn't do it that way before. You know what I mean? So, I think the only place that the effects are better in the Hobbit is with Gollum because if you look at him and you're like, "Man, that's really progressed in the last ten years." Yeah, there were a couple. Instances... Not that Gollum's that bad in the original trilogy. Yeah, there were a couple instances where you're like, "Okay, I can tell," because maybe the lighting was a little bit off. Like he was, a, he looked a little bit more illuminated than he probably should have. Yeah. But um, that was really it. You know, like in terms of him looking realistic, it was pretty on point. But I agree with you that in the Hobbit he just looked like a really fucked up person <laughs> like he just it was it was very good in the hobbit yeah i think that's one of the only aspects where i really quite liked the effects of the hobbit mm-hmm. leading on from that that portrayal with gollum and andy circus playing him was one of the first real instances of motion capture that we we saw especially on this scale and andy circus doing that role for starters he's he, he's brilliant I love him. I think for a long time, he was the best motion capture actor in the world, if he's still not today. What other roles did he do? He went on to do King Kong in Peter Jackson after this series. He also did Caesar uh, in the new Planet of the Apes movies, and he's done a bunch of motion capture in between then. I think he was in the Tintin movie. He's in the new Marvel movies, and he did Snoke in the new Star Wars movies. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't realize that was him. Yeah. He, wow. The thing about Andy Serkis is you never really know that it's Andy Serkis because he's so good at his job. Like, really. I think he's great, a great personality and ambassador for this technology. And you'd have to... I'm just thinking about it because you say he's the best motion picture actor in the world. And I, I motion started, capture. Most, yes. Um, and I'm just trying to think to myself, like... How would that affect the way you act differently? You'd have to be so much more expressive. Yeah, very. You know physical. what I mean. You'd have to use your body more, and you like because do they have points on the face? It's it's all over the body. So if you've ever seen like behind the scenes for even Gollum or um, Caesar with Planet of the Apes, you are basically living like a an ape. Because you'd have to, because yeah. you'd have to embody those physical movements, those kinesthetic movements. I'm just thinking too about, especially with Gollum in Return of the King, and that scene where he's talking to the precious version of himself um, when he's looking in the pond. I thought that was such a great example of good acting. I mean, I know it wasn't... It's so much of the face. Yeah. More than normal acting. And that's exactly what my point was going to be. Even though it's cut scenes, so it's not him... You don't see him actually going through those phases as one continuous shot. I think the fact that they broke it up made it stronger because you see he's got a a gentle, sad expression and then he's got an evil expression. You know what I mean? And it keeps switching back. And, and he'd forth. be playing off himself too. Like that must be so impressive just to watch him perform. There's clips of him online doing live reads and things where he's in character and it's just incredible i think even for the last planet of the apes movie there was a promo where it shows his face while he's acting and it transitions into the the ape 
and you can see I the points that. of his face yeah. as he's acting. I don't know how he hasn't got an Oscar at the moment. Seriously. Just, yeah. And I think it would be really good to see the Academy show recognition for something like this because it is just as much acting as normal. The thing is, it's it's so different and I'm so glad that you brought it up because it was something I'd never really thought of before in that like you have to have an entirely specialized skill set to be able to be successful. It's definitely a different approach Absolutely. to the character. So I, I agree with you. I'm surprised that he hasn't... Has he been nominated? I'd be surprised. I don't if... think so Gee. because uh, avenue for him to be nominated in. Because that doesn't exist. You know what I mean? I think the Academy really should open up... Best motion capture. Yeah, open yeah. up other fields. You know what I mean? Like, like, could he not go under best actor or something? Even? He probably could, but, yeah. but Academy doesn't really like to praise roles where it's motion capture. You know, you like to see the actor... What about like voice acting and stuff? I don't even think voice acting is see, a category. Because Robin Williams was so fantastic as even just a voice actor. And I've heard interviews and stuff with him where he'd just go off, he'd say, can I just have a little bit of freedom here? And he'd just be ridiculous. And they would create characters from him just kind of playing off himself. And I'm surprised that they're so resistant to that change because... They're... I think there should be a category for stunts because there is so much work in getting good stunts. It's not like it's um a rarity, it's it's very common. Much like motion capture and voice work, it's becoming a lot more common and becoming a lot more specialized uh, in the last few years. And it deserves recognition. The thing I am surprised about is that it, none of it's new. If anything, it's just becoming better and better and better. Yeah, it's been it's around more for popular. a long time. Yeah. One of the problems I do have with this series is that it's very vague as to what the powers of the rings are or the powers of the yeah. of the wizards. It, you kind of just go into it and you're like, okay, so these are important. Yeah. I'm not really sure how, but they're important. I'm not really sure how they could do that um, be, with, within the span of the movies, especially since I think the books are pretty vague um, when it comes to what can Saruman do, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think they did it intentionally because they wanted to leave... The powers kind of mystical and kind of up in the air. Mm. Yeah, it's just a MacGuffin, so they probably didn't want to go into too much detail, even if they had the detail. But I would have appreciated it more because you understand what is this thing. Yeah, essentially just makes you invisible and yeah, and you're like that's cool, but there actually is so much more to it. Oh, I'm sure there is. I just I would have liked to have have a little scene about it. You know what I mean? Another thing that a lot of people probably aren't open about this movie, is that it has eight endings. Oh my god. It just wouldn't finish. There was I was counting it. There was there was seven times where it would be perfectly normal for it, for it to, to fade start to black. Yeah. rolling credits. Yep. And then it just starts up again and then it just keeps going. And those last few scenes, I swear they're at half speed. They're so slow and generally i'm okay with that because this is the conclusion of a journey the entire thing has been leading up to this but oh my god it was like 50 minutes left of the movie when the first one started yeah like it was so long did we actually finish it this go because i mean we've seen this movie oh no we did we watched them all did we i thought we like fast forwarded oh we did fast forward (laughs) one of them or two of them actually because they were they were half speed yeah when the hobbits are getting on the boat it's it's all so slow. 
We finished our journey, Sam. It's like, fuck, hurry up, get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. I thought it was interesting, like, when Gollum would get it back, getting the ring back, what had such a powerful physiological effect on them. Yeah, I do like how that's portrayed because Sam has a lot more energy towards the end there because he's not carrying the ring. Yeah. So showing off what the ring has an effect on you, both Frodo and Gollum are very two different effects. And I like the the way they showed that with the noise. So like when Sam's holding it and he won't give it back and he's looking at it and he hears the noise and as soon as Frodo takes it away, it stops mm. kind of thing. Isn't that interesting? I think that's probably the way some addicts feel. Like you've got all this fuzz and all this noise in in your head and in your life and in your mind and as soon as you shoot up you're away from it you know what i mean it's interesting that you make a drug comparison there it's just that's literally what i saw because when you watch Gollum too like he dies getting that ring he dies back. happy yeah because he's on that high you know what i mean like he's so happy i think it's interesting that you've observed that because i remember reading an article about how there's a lot of uh, those drug addiction themes in Tolkien's work. Mm. I'm not sure if it was intentional on him, but a lot of people have picked up on those themes before. And it's interesting that yourself only recently seeing it for the first time without being influenced by those preconceived ideas, you also saw that. And the different types of reactions that you can have. Like like Mm -hmm. I said, Frodo and Gollum had two very different reactions to the same thing, which Mm -hmm. is what some people have to these things Mm -hmm. i would just like to say that like this universe is probably like the canonical epitome of what fantasy is and should be yeah i really think that this series sparked a resurgence of popularity in the fantasy genre Mm -hmm. i don't think that you would have something like game of thrones today as big as it is without lord of the rings Mm -hmm. it very similarly to what star wars has done recently with sci-fi Yes, it's made it not about being nerdy and this very particular thing. It's made it cool to be a fan of it. Well, yeah, because we watched Star Wars, I liked I liked and looked forward to watching Star Trek, right? So, I mean, it's it's the same effect with The Lord of the Rings and fantasy. I just think that it's a lot more, I don't know, acceptable to be wearing like Star Wars merch now than what it was 20 years ago. Yeah. And that's similar to fantasy, um, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings. There's even an episode of Friends where Chandler says that he was reading Lord of the Rings in high school and Joey's like, um, I was having decks in high school <laughs> talking about. Yeah. But after these movies came out and the Academy appraised it so well and said that these movies are awesome and people could see that in the value and, and things of these films. It created films, a shift. It really did create a shift. And I think Peter Jackson and this crew really should should take credit for that. I, I really think like if you haven't seen these, go see them because- just to see it as a work of cinematic art. It's a art. spectacle. Yeah, like you'll, if you don't like fantasy, if you don't like the story, just to go see it for, for what they created, it it's quite a masterpiece and I would really recommend it. And if you do love fantasy, you will lose your ever-loving mind. So go for it. I look forward to talking about the next couple in the next coming weeks. Same, because there's some other things that I really, other themes that I really want to touch on that'll be better suited in those next episodes, so I'm really excited too. Look forward to it. 
We have been Daniel and Brenton this week. Thanks for joining us. Feel free to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or comment on SoundCloud. And until next week, thanks for listening. I also want you to be hyper vigilant, though, that if I'm like, it's because (laughs) that's going to go in at the end, isn't it?